The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. This is really difficult for me as an Australian. Uh, this is all about this event is taking it, taking yourself seriously, and, and the one thing I don't do is taking take myself seriously. It's just not what what Australians do. But here we are. And I'm about to launch into a lecture. The lecture is longish. Um, my kids brought, got your iPods? Good. We're good to go. Uh, Rosemary said, yeah. <laughs> Dad, will I understand it? No, nah, probably not. So just all I ask is just keep it low. That's, that's fine. And anyone else with iPods, now might be the time. A uh, couple of just personal lead-ins before I go technical on you. Uh, a quarter of a century ago, almost a quarter of a century ago now, um, Rosemary and I decided to embark on an excellent adventure. I gave up my career as a lawyer. She gave, gave up her career as a high school teacher. We left Sydney for Philadelphia to come to Westminster, and we told our families that we would we'd come back down under, back to the land of Oz, uh, three years, four years, tops. Well, the Lord's plan for our lives ended up being a little bit different. It uh, took paths that we didn't expect, so 24 years now later, we are still here uh, stateside, as they say in Australia, and, well, asking our questions, are we immigrants or still expatriates? Haven't answered that question yet. I'm here today to be inaugurated, enthroned, I don't know, whatever these words are. Uh, To be honest, I I feel like a a pretender. as a full professor in the Old Testament department at Westminster, my name now gets added to a, a list of names that reads like the pantheon of reformed Old Testament scholarship in the 20th century. Uh, these are just some of the names. Robert Dick Wilson, O.T. Alice, um, E.J. Young, Meredith Klein, uh, O. Palmer Robertson, Raymond Dillard, Tremper Longman, and Bruce Walkie. And now a pygmy joins the giants. You know, that's just an incredible legacy that... that Uh, a tradition that I live in here. Um, I really feel the weight of doing my work as an Old Testament scholar uh, in in this tradition. I think actually more than that, I feel the weight of doing my work as a biblical theologian because the tradition of Westminster Old Testament theology, Old Testament work, is not just to do Old Testament. You do biblical theology. You do work, you start in the Old Testament, but you don't end there. You've got to span the Testaments, and of course you always drive forward to Christ. And I, always, I just have a sense that that's the legacy I, I live in, that biblical theological legacy, that in the tradition, that redemptive historical tradition, the tradition of Voss. In fact, I kind of think as I got through this lecture and, and finally finished it last night about 3 o'clock in the morning or whatever it was, seriously, um, that I'd like to think that Voss would say, in fact, he might say if you're alive today, that was a waste of time. I wrote all that a hundred years ago. If you know what I'm referring to, is wrote, uh, Voss wrote a, a book uh, called The Eschatology of the Psalter, and that's really what I'm talking about today. So I, I hope I'm, in whatever innovations I'm making, probably not many, I'm just repeating things that have been said here for many years. That's the legacy of the men that I've, I follow, but then there are the men that, that I work with. Um, 
my colleagues in the Old Testament department. This past week, I had occasion to listen again on the web to Kenneth Branagh's stirring rendition of the St. Crispin Day's speech from Shakespeare's Henry V. Don't ask me why. Um, but that line, I was struck again by that line, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. And I, I couldn't help but hear that and start to cry because I think about my, my colleagues, they're more than colleagues, they are brothers in this band of brothers. Uh, Steve, Elliot, Mike, Pete, and of course my older, slightly older but much wiser brother, Al Groves. Uh, I, I love serving with you. These are, these are more than co-workers, more than colleagues. These are brothers in every sense of the word. Uh, especially gratified that Al is with us today. Um, Al, 24 years ago, our first semester here, Rosemary and I, uh, we sat in this room and it was your fir first year of teaching Hebrew. So we kind of began, in a way, together, Rosemary and I as students and uh, Al as a Hebrew professor in this room, huge number of people doing, uh, doing Hebrew together. A and it's for me, it is a great joy to count Al as my first, my teacher, uh, always my friend, also my, my mentor, uh, but above all, the older, wiser brother. You taught me here Hebrew 24 years ago in this room, and I look forward in a couple of minutes, or more than a couple of minutes, uh, uh, <laughs> to hear you teach me again face to face, and I, I look forward to that. That will be difficult for us, but uh, I'm glad you're here. Uh, um, this is taking time, but this is, this is like the Oscars. There's no music playing, so I'm going. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you want to stop me, just start singing or something. Uh, you know, this is a moment of recognition, I guess. Don't like it. I really feel uncomfortable here, but this is where we are. You know, I stand alone before you today being recognised, but whatever I do here is really the product of a team effort. And, of course, that team is Team Green, my, my family. Uh, and I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the support, the encouragement, and uh, far too often the sacrifice of my family. Uh, I owe a deep, deep gret of, uh, <laughs> debt of gratitude to my wife, Rosemary. Um, four years, tops. Yeah, didn't quite work out that way, did it? You gave up many of your own aspirations and to follow me halfway around the world, and you have resisted, mostly resisted the temptation to say, that's it. We're out of here, we're back to Oz. Uh, so I, I deeply appreciate your uh, involvement in this ministry. Uh, when I wrote the dissertation, I dedicated it to Rosemary, and I just wrote these words, love is patient. <laughs> when it took me like 15 years to write the dissertation, whatever it was, I have a very patient wife, and I'm so grateful for her uh, long suffering and, and her patience. Even my kids, my long suffering children, uh, Mitchell and Adelaide, who, if they don't, probably should resent the favouritism that I have shown over the years to my third child, Westminster. And they have, they have sacrificed in ways that, uh, well, in, in many, many ways. And, and kids, thank you. I'm glad you're here today. I know you're getting the day off school, but I'm glad you're here nonetheless. <laughs> Finally, I want to... Uh, my, my final uh, debt of gratitude goes to people that you have never met and will never meet my parents. Now aged, uh, living back in Sydney, never having visited the States for health reasons, uh, I see them once every four or five years. I just reflect 
and those of you from Christian families will be with me on this, just what a gift it is to have godly Christian parents. I know that my mother and father today, you know, they're into their 80s now. My mother is in very declining health. They began today beside their beds praying. And they've been doing that for the 60 years that they've been married. And I know that every day they pray for me. And I know that my ministry or whatever it is I'm doing here is undergirded by all the things that they gave to me, put into me those many years ago. And still, like they planted seeds in me. And even today, I know that they are, they are nurturing those seeds by their prayers, watering those seeds with their prayers. And I'm, I'm so grateful for them. They won't hear me say this, but I still wanted to say it anyway. Finally, um, was on Al's blog uh, this morning and, and I just was caught, my, my attention once again caught by um, the words at the heading of the blog, God's unfailing love endures forever. His chesed, his covenant faithfulness endures forever. Actually, this is picking up what Pete said earlier. That has become for me, just in the, in the past number of years, I, I, I find myself wanting to live more and more out of God's covenant faithfulness. That's what I hang on to. And that's actually what I want to talk about today in our lecture here. The topic is Psalms of Lament or Songs of the Suffering Servant. Let's put our heads, heads down, tail up, turn on your iPods, and here we go. Um, for most of the 20th, uh, 20th century, when scholars have sought to interpret a psalm, the first question they normally ask is, what form is this particular psalm? Or to use slightly less technical language, what type of psalm am I looking at? Or what genre does it belong to? Now, those who are familiar with the history of psalm scholarship will understand why these questions are asked, um, but the intricacies of what is known as form criticism need not concern us today. For the purposes of this lecture, it's just sufficient background to know that ever since the groundbreaking work of the great German scholar Hermann Gunkel back in the earlier part of the last century, it has become standard procedure in Psalms interpretation, both for conservatives and for scholars in the more critical tradition, to interpret a psalm in the context of the form or the genre to which the psalm belongs. So let's begin with a, just a, a brief introduction to Gunkel's system of classification. Um, he's, he identified five major types and seven minor types of psalms. The major types include hymns, laments, both individual and corporate or communal uh, laments, individual thanksgiving psalms, and royal psalms. He had seven minor types, minor forms, and by that he means they're just less common. They were pilgrimage psalms, psalms of community thanksgiving, wisdom psalms, general liturgies, prophetic liturgies, Torah liturgies, and if you can't put everything else in, if there's no other category you can come up with to get the rest of them, you call it mixed types. You know, whatever fits in a grab bag. Now, my purpose in mentioning Gunkel's system of classification is simply to provide some very general background for my focus on one particular form of psalm, that is the lament. So, and of course, you want to wonder why am I talking about laments? Well, I think that's just where I am right now. Laments are catching my attention, and there's many reasons for that. So let's take a quick look at the group, this group of psalms and begin with this question. So what constitutes a psalm of lament? We can refine that question by further asking, what are the elements in a psalm of lament? Always this statement, there is considerable scholarly debate. That's just me saying, I've read the books, everyone's arguing. Okay, whatever. Um, but there's general agreement. There are, there are, that a psalm of lament includes five elements. Firstly, uh, an address or invocation, an address to God. Uh, secondly, the lament or complaint, this is what's wrong. Then a confession of trust, yet I trust in you, Lord. Then there's a petition, O Lord, come and save us. 
and then finally a vow of praise, I will give thanks to you, something along those lines. Not every lament psalm uh, strictly adheres to this structure. Sometimes they'll switch the different uh, parts around. Sometimes they'll leave, leave out an element or include maybe a different, some other element. But you, these, these five elements occur often enough that, we can, that allow us to speak meaningfully about the, the basic form of a psalm of lament. Let me just take two psalms to illustrate how these elements uh, might combine, how they, how they combine to make a psalm of lament. I'll use two psalms. I'll use uh, arguably what's the most, the, the darkest psalm uh, of lament, and that's Psalm 22, and a shorter exemplar of this genre, that's Psalm 13, the passage which was just read from a few minutes ago. Typically, a psalm of lament opens, uh, moves quite quickly from, the in, from an invocation or address to the complaint. So Psalm 22 opens with, my God, my God, the invocation, and then moves immediately to the complaint, which often occurs in the form of a question. In Psalm 22, it comes out in this form, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? And so on. In Psalm uh, 13, the complaint begins, it's almost like the psalmist is complaining before he even addresses the Lord. How long, oh wait on, O oh Lord, uh, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? In Psalm 22, we see the complaint about the Lord's abandonment. So the next thing you move to is the complaint. We see the complaint about the Lord's abandonment of the psalmist balanced by a complex confession of faith that ranges over a, a number of verses and culminates in verse 10. This is his confession of faith. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Similarly, in, verse, in Psalm uh, 13, verse 5, that psalm gives voice to the simple yet profound affirmation, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So you move from address to complaint to affirmation of faith in the Lord. Um, then you move to the petition, the cry for help in Psalm 22, the only acceptable response to God's inexplicable and disturbing silence will be a positive answer to the psalmist's petition to the Lord to be not far from me. A request that is picked up again in verse 19 with, but you, O Lord, do not be far off, and then expanded in the following verses. In Psalm 13, consistent with its brevity and simplicity, the plea for help is expressed by a simple single verse. Con um, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And then finally, the element of thanks comes the element of thanksgiving or praise, either in response to or, an anticip or in anticipation of the Lord's deliverance of the psalmist. Uh, the closing section of Psalm 22 opens with the words, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, because you've rescued the afflicted one. And then in uh, Psalm 13, it ends in a similar but very brief way. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. That should give you a feel for the way the Psalms of Lament are structured. But in this lecture, I am not particularly interested in that issue. I'm much more interested in the question of the content rather than the structure of the Psalms of Lament. But how do you summarize the content of literally dozens and dozens of Psalms? There are many Psalms of Lament. Let me try this synopsis. I'll lead in by talking about the Psalter in general. The Psalter, taken as a whole, uh, draws a rich and complex picture of life in the covenant. The assumption throughout the Psalter is that Yahweh has proved and will continue to prove his fidelity to the covenant, that he will fulfill his covenant promises. 
more specifically, the Psalms of Lament are built upon the expectation that God will aggressively protect, defend, and rescue his covenant partner when the psalmist is in distress, that the Lord will not sit idly by when his loyal servant is in dire straits. Let me make the point more strongly. The authors of the Psalms of Lament write with a confident, even at times audacious, almost presumptuous expectation that the Lord will, indeed, must come to their rescue when they are in trouble. Where does this audacity come from? Yes, it comes from knowing who their God is. He is a powerful God. He is a God who can defeat the psalmist's enemy or heal the psalmist from sickness. But more importantly, he is a God who has covenantally bound himself to protect his people. Above all, sitting below the surface of all the psalms is the affirmation that our God is a covenant-keeping God. On the other hand... The authors of the Psalms of Lament also view themselves as covenant keepers, and that gives them the right to audaciously call upon the Lord for aid. To put this in a slightly different way, by and large, the various authors of the Psalms of Lament see themselves as Israelites in good covenant standing, who therefore have the right to expect of their covenant God to come and rescue them in times of trouble. The authors of the Psalms of Lament are constantly distinguishing themselves from the wicked, well, the evildoers, that's them, that's not us. And of course, the wicked are often the people who oppress the psalmist. Positively, the psalmists locate themselves in a group that is variously described in the Psalter as the righteous, the godly, the upright, and so on. And they constantly reaffirm their trust in Yahweh. There are even some psalms where the psalmists really go out of their way. This is the psalms of innocence. They say, we, we are righteous. We are covenant keepers. The, uh, the psalms of innocence, Psalms 7, 17, 26, and 44. Moreover, on those occasions when the psalmist are guilty of some act of covenant infidelity and they are suffering some discipline at the Lord's hands, they're quick to admit their transgressions and to ask the Lord for, to forgive their sins. An excellent example of this is Psalm 38. Here the Lord disciplines the psalmist for his sin by means of a serious illness and his enemies appear to be taking advantage of his weakened condition. Surely, this situation, in this situation, the psalmist cannot expect that the Lord will come to his rescue. He's sinned after all. But he does expect the Lord will come to his rescue. The psalmist admits his sin. He says in verse 18, I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. And now restored to good covenant relationship, he can legitimately and confidently call on the Lord to come to his, his aid. Make haste, O Lord. Come and help me, O Lord of my salvation. My point is that the laments provide a window on an aspect of Israel's covenant relationship with Yahweh. When the psalmists are keeping covenant, walking in God's ways, trusting the Lord, keeping his laws and confessing their sins, then they can expect that God will keep covenant and rescue them in times of distress. In other words, the laments tell the story of Israelites in right relationship with God. And it is for that reason that sometimes these uh, laments are called Psalms of the Righteous Sufferer. Another feature of the lament is just how many there are. At the beginning of this lecture, I noted that Gunkel identified about a dozen different psalm types. But far and away, the most frequently occurring psalm type or form is the lament. Uh, predictably, scholars disagree over how many of the psalms are laments. Okay, everyone disagrees. But uh, there's a broad consensus that something like 50 psalms, there are, there are about 50 psalms of individual lament. 
that's 50 out of 150. And about another 17 of communal lament. That's pushing towards almost a half of the Psalter are psalms of lament. Uh, they outnumber every other psalm, every other type of psalm. If the Psalter is a poetic portrayal of life in covenant fellowship with God, then it is a lamentable life. It is a life with a surprising amount of hardship and suffering, conflict and pain, or to use Philip Johnson's summary word, distress. He writes, Johnson writes, distress is the, one of the most common themes of the Psalter, particularly in the first half of the book. Psalm after psalm portray, portrays distress and anguish in eloquent description and graphic metaphor. The writers feel besieged, constricted, burdened, bogged down, submerged and drowning. They are frequently helpless and occasionally hopeless. Surrounded by enemies, suffering physically, punished by God, they cry out for relief and deliverance. This is certainly a dominant motif in this precious book. That would be an understatement. So what are we to make of this? Are we to conclude that Israel's poets are clinically depressed and they need to go after the counselling centre? And these are just people who cannot look on the bright side of life? Is there something wrong with them? Or is it they just unlucky people? They just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, most of the time. No, it doesn't work like that. Once we accept that the Psalms describe the life of an Israelite in good covenant standing, a covenant keeper, someone who trusts in Yahweh and walks in his ways, then we are left with the troubling conclusion that suffering and distress, oddly, disturbingly, yet inescapably, walk hand in hand with righteousness, with covenant fidelity. Anguish and suffering are not strangers whom the psalmist accidentally and occasionally bumps into as he walks down the path of life. No, the Psalter leaves us with a distinct and disturbing impression that the righteous walk through life with a menacing companion, companion shadowing their every step. In other words, the distress that the psalms so frequently and passionately describe is not accidental. It's not random mishap but rather an in inevitable and integral element in the life of those who trust in the Lord. Another aspect of the Psalms of Lament is the diversity of afflictions that the psalmists face. These afflictions can be variously categorized. Uh, Philip, um, Philip Johnson, again, he has a, a number of categories here. He says we have Psalms of personal suffering. Uh, you know, there's lots of physical and mental and emotional anguish, communal suffering, oppressive enemies. Uh, the, then there's the, the topic called na uh, nature and death. Uh, of course, as Klaus Westermann says, the enemy is the dominant subject of the Psalms of Lament. And the vast majority of this type of psalm fall into this category, psalms when you're surrounded by enemies. Spend time in the Lament Psalms and you will leave with the impression that the psalmists lived their lives looking over their shoulders, constantly wondering whether the next attack, where the next attack will come from. Johnson, once again, uh, captures the mood with this description of the enemies. They are overwhelmingly numerous and fiercely aggressive. They conspire, they threaten, they arm themselves, set traps, ambush, pursue, and do everything possible to destroy the vulnerable psalmists. Through all this, the psalmists demonstrate remarkable confidence in the Lord, and more specifically, in his covenant commitment to deliver his servants from the, th the threats to their existence. The Psalms of Lament echo with these words, In God I trust, or I put my trust in you, which when you cast that in the language of the covenant, takes the form which we saw in Psalm 13, I trust in God's chesed, his steadfast love, his unfailing covenant love. 
his faith, covenant faithfulness. Even in times of great affliction, the psalmist never doubt that God will keep covenant. In most of the psalms, therefore, the psalmists speak of their covenant partner as one who is poised, who is close by, poised, even anxious to come to their aid. These laments breathe, as it were, the same confident air of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff comfort me. The Psalms of lament generally breathe that same air. The laments affirm that while I may be surrounded by dangers on all sides, my covenant God is close by me, with me, with his rod and staff at hand, ready and willing to drive off the enemies and protect me from danger. Most of the time. There is a group, however, of laments. I'm going to call them the extreme laments. It would be too pomo to call them the ex-laments. But there, there's something about these. They, they go out further than uh, into a darker area than the, the regular laments do. Uh, do. Uh, they exude a far less confident tone. For me, these, what, marks these, what makes these laments extreme is not that the distress that they're describing is more severe than in the other psalms, but rather that the psalmist has reason to doubt that God is close at hand uh, and eager to fulfill his covenant obligations. In fact, a cold, hard assessment of the situation causes the, the uh, psalmist to conclude that, in fact, God is far away or that he's forgotten his covenant partner, or worse, simply abandoned him. While this is a relatively small group of psalms, they are among the darkest and most disturbing in the Psalter. At the slightly, then we put these on a bit of a spectrum, at the slightly less dark end of this group of psalms is a psalm like Psalm 35, where the Lord is depicted as nearby, but passively looking on at the psalmist's distress. And then you move on a little bit in the more extreme direction to Psalm 10, where God is not close, but far off in the distance, and worse, hiding himself from the psalmist's view. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 10. And then there are the psalms where the language becomes more overtly covenantal. Um, passages like the one we read today, Psalm 13, the opening words paint a terrifying picture. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? For no good reason. The Lord has a case of covenantal forgetfulness. He is choosing not to remember his covenantal obligations. Forget, remember, these are covenantal words. And he's standing, he, and, and more than that, he's, he's forgetting to fulfill his covenant obligations, and he appears to have been doing this for a long time. Shifting back into more metaphorical language, it is as if the Lord has been going out of his way to hide from the psalmist. The, the psalmist is calling out to him, and the Lord is up in the back corner hiding. That's what it looks like. And then there is perhaps the darkest psalm of all, of all the individual laments, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Read in a covenantal context, the act of forsaking someone is tantamount to the termination of the relationship. Not surprisingly then, when the psalmist cries night and day to the Lord, he hears nothing but silence. And for that reason, Psalm 22 takes us out into the most lamentable experience of all. It is one thing for a psalmist who trusts in the Lord to suffer distress and agony. It is another thing altogether to go through that experience and be treated as one who is no longer in covenant relationship with the Lord. There's something dark and something extreme about that. 
more examples of extreme psalms in which the Lord inexplicably distances himself uh, from the, his people can be given. They often occur in, uh, in the communal laments, the group laments, with Psalm 44 being the, the most troubling example. <clears throat> Here the psalmist uses another word for covenant termination. It's the word zanak, which is usually translated as uh, something like reject or cast away. But you have rejected and disgraced us and have not gone out with our, and you've not gone out with us against our enemies. Uh, for here, the psalmist, for the psalmist, God's action is thoroughly inexplicable because Israel had, in fact, been fulfilling their covenant obligations. All this, all this distress, all this opposition has come against us, though we have not forgotten you. You've forgotten us, but we've not forgotten you. We have not been false to the covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. This is an inconceivable situation. Once again, it is one thing to be surrounded by enemies. It is another thing to go into battle and discover that your covenant God, for no good reason, has either forgotten about you or chosen to stay in bed. Um, throughout the Psalter, the psalmists are constantly facing trials and affliction. But in the, the Lament Psalms, it is as if they have taken up residence. The psalmists have taken up residence in the valley of the shadow of death. Yet in that valley, the psalmists were always confident of uh, the Lord's presence. But in this small group of extreme laments, it seems as though the psalmists are there in the valley of terror, the valley of the shadow of death, with a God who for some incomprehensible reason is, at least for a time, not keeping his covenant promise to be with and protect his people. Well, that's a quick overview of what's going on in the Psalms of Lament. I have a quick summary. I'm not going to do it because that would be to repeat. One last element. Um, in the Lament Psalms before I move forward. To this point in the lecture, I have referred to the authors of the Psalms of Lament with generic words like the psalmists, or just the psalmist. But closer investigation of the list of 50 psalms of individual lament that I've referred to shows that no fewer than 41 of these laments, of uh, individual laments, bear the Le David, the of David superscript. It matters little whether that's the superscripts point to Davidic authorship or um, or whether they should be understood as psalms about David, the overall all impact is that the life of suffering which generates these psalms of lament is a life that is strongly tied to the life of King David. It's a life that's closely tied to David. If the psalms of lament suggest that it is the lot of the righteous, the covenant keepers, to suffer, then they also hint that it is the lot of, ki of King David, the righteous king, to be called to a life of trial and tribulation. So some other elements we brought in there. Okay, that was just background. We're still into background. Now, that was one area of psalm scholarship. Now we're going to move a little further on. Thus far, I have done little more than uh, give you a fairly standard analysis of the psalms of lament, reading them entirely in, the, in their ancient Israelite context. But my own growing dissatisfaction with this way of reading the Psalms, it's insufficiently Christian, uh, combined with recent developments in Psalm scholarship have sent me down a different path in the interpretation of the Psalms of Lament, and it is to that path that I now turn. Until recently, the focus of Psalm scholarship has been on individual Psalms. But from the no early 1980s, scholars have begun to ponder the question of whether there is a redactional intention behind the shape of the Psalter. Now, let me put that into English. Um, clearly, the Psalter was not written in an afternoon. 
the Psalter did not drop out of heaven in an afternoon. There is, there is strong evidence that the canonical collection of 150 psalms came together over a long period of time as individual psalms were gathered together into collections and collections into books and then books together into the whole Psalter. So did the Psalter come together by accident? Well, clearly no. At different times, editors, to use, or to use the technical word that I use in my discipline, redactors, wove the pieces together to form a whole. So here's the question. As the editors or redactors wove the Psalter together into a complete book, did they leave any clues? Did they leave any clues about the way that they thought the book should be interpreted? Or is, another way of getting at the same question, or is the order in which the 150 Psalms appear an accident of history and of no exegetical significance? Or is the ordering of the Psalms have exegetical significance? A typical question we ask is, is the, is the placement of Psalms 1 and 2 uh, Psalm 1, a Torah psalm. Psalm 2, a royal psalm at the beginning of the Psalter. Does that give us any hints as to how we should read the rest of the book? Do those two psalms function as an introduction to the Psalter? And if so, how might that affect the way we read the rest of the psalms? They're the kind of questions we ask in this particular area of research. Now, you'll be pleased to know that I'll spare you the recitation of 25 years of debate over what is known in scholarly circles as the shape and shaping of the Psalter discussion. Instead, I'll simply say that I find myself in general agreement that with, the, with those scholars who see in the ordering of the Psalms evidence that the Psalter has been redacted in an eschatological direction. Now, what does that mean? Well, the editors have organised the various psalms in such a way as to encourage readers to interpret the individual psalms not merely in their original grammatical historical setting, but as pointing forward to events that would take place at the climax of Israel's history, at the eschaton. So, for example, psalms that once spoke primarily about King David, like Psalm 2, should now be read as pointing forward in some way to the experience of the eschatological king the eschatological King David, in other words, the Messiah. So no longer just read, that's what it was like back there. No, you read the whole Psalter towards the climax of Israel's history. This means that Psalms that were not necessarily eschatological in, or in orientation at the level of their original composition may be open to an eschatological reinterpretation in their literary context, that is, in the final form of the Psalter. In that, at that level. Again, further investigation is needed, but I am now inclined to think that the redactional activity that produced the Psalter in its canonical form bears witness to an early impulse to read the whole Psalter in an eschatological direction. For me, this opens up the possibility that many Psalms, especially the Davidic Psalms, can be read as Messianic Psalms. That's where that's driving me. No longer three or four or five or six or ten Messianic Psalms, but all the Davidic Psalms now start to become Messianic Psalms. Hopefully you can see where I'm heading with this. Uh, next point. The other new area of scholarly interest, this one's five to ten years uh, old, that's opened up in the last little while, is, uh, is what's called the reception history of the Psalter during the Second Temple period. In other words, how Jews of the intertestamental and New Testament periods interpreted the Psalter. What were people, how were people reading it in those years after the, the, um, the return from exile? One reason for this new focus on reception history is the interest in, um, in Second Temple Judaism that follows the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls from uh, Qumran. Another reason is simply the reader-oriented spirit of our, our interpretive moment. We, we are in a moment of interest in what do readers do with the text. Uh, the the centre of gravity has now shifted much more in that direction. 
in, in Old Testament scholarship. If Old Testament approaches to Psalms interpretation ask the question, so what did this Psalm mean to its original author? And if the Shape and Shaping School asks, what did this Psalm mean to the editors who put this, this Psalter together? Those interested in reception history ask, what did this Psalm mean to later readers of the Psalm? later readers of the Psalter, especially in the period after Israel returned from exile. I guess you could call this the new perspective on the Psalter. <laughs> Which is a really a good way of describing what's going on, but probably not politically correct. This line of inquiry suggests that at least some readers in the intertestamental period may have picked up on whatever hints the editors of the Psalter has, had dropped and read the Psalter in an eschatological direction, that is, pointing beyond the events and actors of ancient Israel towards the events and actors in the drama that would be played out at the climax of Israel's history. Here I shall have to pass by some intriguing evidence from the Septuagint about the way that the translators of the Septuagint might have been reading the, the Psalter, but I'll make a quick comment on Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls community. In one fragmentary ten-line prose composition, we find this reference to the Psalter. All these, all these Psalms, David spoke through prophecy which was given to him by the Most High God. This suggests that at Qumran, there were those who read David to be speaking prophetically through his psalms. In other words, he was no longer speaking about his own experiences, but speaking beyond his time to a time yet future. Susan Gillingham summarizes the way the Psalter was received and read at Qumran in this way. She says, far more explicitly than in the biblical tradition, this shows how the psalms were now being understood as prophecies from David. The prophet, like Moses, the prophet par excellence, and as prophecies, they were now being, that were now being fulfilled in the Qumran community. They were reading the Psalter as prophecies actually of them at Qumran. To use Ben Zion Wachholder's phrase, he says, it appears that Qumran was reading the Psalter as an as eschatological psalmody. By this he means that historical David, through the gift of prophecy, was actually speaking the words of, of Messiah who was yet to come. Uh, we might also want to use the phrase, I'll use this as well, prophetic psalmody, eschatological or prophetic psalmody, uh, to describe this way of viewing the Psalter. I want to suggest also that the New Testament authors read the Psalter in the same way, not merely as ancient Israel's inspired hymnody, but as prophecy, as predictions of events that would happen at the climax of Israel's history. Of course, the apostles differed from Qumran in that they placed Jesus and his people rather than the Qumran community at the center of these climactic events. Uh, don't worry, Steve, Taylor, and who else has got a class on at 12? They're cool. <laughs> Are they? They're good? Okay. Uh, with respect to the New Testament, the first, how does the New Testament fit into this? The first bit of information comes from Luke 24, 44. I just proved that we're at Westminster, didn't I? Um, <laughs> It is a text from what I hear, I didn't realise this, which, which is quoted in just about every course here at Westminster Seminary. So all together now, you can recite it back to me. You know the context. After his resurrection, Jesus sits his disciples down uh, for a crash course in Old Testament interpretation. And he tells them, quote, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, I quoted there from the ESV. I could have done it from the NIV. doesn't much matter. They all re reflect the received translational tradition. Uh, prophets in the prophets and in the Psalms. But as a, a number of recent scholars have noticed, there is no definite article before the word salmois, Psalms. So the better translation would be something like this. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms. Read them together. 
not prophets and the Psalms, something separate. Elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, when the Old Testament is referred to, it's referred to as the law of Moses and the prophets. So unless Jesus and the other New Testament writers are ignoring the Psalter and the rest of the writings when they speak about the law and the prophets, it seems that they were including the Psalms in some way in the prophets or being uh, reading the Psalms in connection with or as an extension of the prophets. This understanding of the Psalms as prophecy or the Psalms in connection with prophecy seems to comport well with what we saw at Qumran. And more, even more interesting bit of evidence comes from Acts 2, 29 to 30. Here Peter introduces his quotation of Psalm 16 by saying, David died and was buried, but he was a prophet. Well, David wasn't a prophet. No, he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Read Psalm 16 by itself. Read it without knowing what the New Testament will do with it, and you would not conclude that it is a messianic or an eschatological psalm. It appears, however, that Peter is interpreting David, interpreting the Psalter in line with Qumran in a prophetic and eschatological direction. Read this way and read with the belief that Jesus of Nazareth is the climax of Israel's history and the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Israel. And the Psalter, the whole book, becomes a book of prophecy about the life and times of Messiah Jesus. If this is a fair understanding of the Second Temple Jewish and more particularly the early Christian approach to the Psalter, then the classic distinction between Messianic and non-Messianic Psalms begins to break down. Not a distinction we should even have anymore. Typically, scholars have argued Typically, scholars have argued that the primary meaning of most psalms is to be found by reading them in their ancient Israelite context, whether that be in the life of David or in the more corporate setting of Israel's temple worship. A few psalms, as so scholarship says, a few psalms and just a few are, however, to be understood as describing the eschatological future and specifically uh, events surrounding the life of the Messiah. In other words, there is only a small group of messianic psalms, 11 by one prominent scholar's recent account, that should be read as direct prophecies of the coming Messiah. Only 11 messianic psalms. I'm saying no, not 11, many, many more. But given the evidence from Qumran and from the New Testament combined with this, interest, this interesting information about the redaction of the Psalter, I am more inclined to read the whole of the Psalter in a prophetic eschatological direction. More specifically, I am inclined to read all of the Psalms of David as messianic, messianic Psalms, Psalms that describe different dimensions of the life and especially the suffering of Israel's eschatological king. This means that I approach the so-called Messianic Psalms a little differently than most. Instead of treating the small group of Psalms that the New Testament applies to Jesus, Psalms like Psalm 2, 16, 22, 45, 110, and one or two more, instead of saying there's a, that, there's that small group of Psalms that refer back to Jesus, instead of saying there are your Messianic Psalms, um, I rather regard those Psalms as the tip of an eschatological and Messianic iceberg. It is not that the New Testament quotes all of a small group of messianic psalms, rather it quotes from a few of a very large group of messianic psalms, different orientation. Now, what does that have to do with the psalms of lament? Aha, we are within striking distance of the conclusion. <laughs> if you have a long-range missile. <laughs> no, we're good, we're good. Um, surprisingly, perhaps, my answer to that question begins with Jesus' baptism. Okay, sidetrack. Uh, rabbit trail. 
but you all, you all know my teaching style enough. I want to suggest that it is at Jesus' baptism that he begins to understand what he's called to be and do. At his baptism, we hear the heavenly voice proclaim, You are my, my beloved Son, uh, with you I am well pleased. The first part of the verse, of course, is an expanded citation of Psalm 2. Read prophetically, the Father is telling Jesus that he is the fulfillment of this psalm. Jesus is Israel's eschatological king, the Messiah, the human son of God, the one to whom world dominion will belong. But the second part of the announcement is more disturbing. With you I am well pleased is almost certainly a quotation from Isaiah 42 verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Probably a reference to that. This means that Jesus is being identified also as the servant of Isaiah 40 to 55, the suffering servant. In a surprising combination of concepts, the voice from heaven calls Jesus to live a life that would fuse the two roles, the role of, mess of messianic king and suffering servant, the king who would rule over the world on God's behalf, but also the servant of the Lord who, as we have seen from our reading from Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who would suffer and die for the sins of Israel. Obviously, Jesus then, so what is my calling? King and suffering servant, Jesus would have gone to Isaiah's prophecies of the suffering servant for a deeper understanding of his strange, of his strange calling. But I believe he also turned to the Psalter and read it as prophetic psalmody and found in it the outlines of the story of the messianic suffering servant. The royal psalms were no longer psalms in praise of Israel's king. They were now prophecies of Israel's eschatological king, the Messiah. And to refocus on the topic of this lecture, the psalms of lament no longer merely provided descriptions of the distress and suffering of ancient Israelites, but they were prophecies of the eschatological suffering servant. In the Psalter's rich tapestry that wove together strands of kingship and suffering, Jesus found the outlines of what it was, what was to become his story. In the, the, the Psalter, he finds the script for the starring role that he would play in the climactic final scene of the drama of Israel. So if I may abbreviate and expand what Jesus would later say to his disciples, everything written about me in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Thus it is written that Messiah should suffer. But where does it say that Messiah should suffer? Where should the, the eschatological king, where does it say that he will suffer? In Isaiah 53, perhaps, but certainly in the laments of the Davidic Psalter. That is, if you read them as eschatological psalmody. If this prophetic orientation to the Psalms of Lament is correct, then we should not be surprised that as Jesus moves inexorably to the cross and as he takes up the mantle of the suffering servant, we begin to hear him quoting from these Psalms, not merely because they provide biblical words for him to speak in time of distress, but rather because Jesus understood his suffering as the climactic fulfillment of the prophecies of the Psalms of Lament. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says to his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Here Jesus is quoting from a refrain that echoes through two closely connected psalms of lament, Psalms 42 and 43. They're actually one psalm, kind of divided, which the Septuagint translates as this, this refrain, Why are you very sorrowful, O my soul? Jesus says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. I find it hard to deny that Jesus is interpreting these two psalms, 42, 43, um, I, I hard to deny that he's interpreting it as, um, as a, um, a prophecy of his agony in the garden. That these two psalms together constitute a particularly dark psalm. See, I would say that these two psalms are, are, are an extreme psalm. 
Yes, the psalmist is surrounded by enemies, uh, but worse, as Jesus recites or uh, refers to this psalm, he's surrounded by enemies, but worse, it's the Lord's breakers and waves that are crashing over him. Uh, it's not just their enemies, but the Lord is, 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 is actually attacking him, so it appears. And the Lord also seems to have forgotten him. The psalmist says, why have you forgotten me in Psalm 42, 43? Uh, why have you forgotten me? Of course, that is an anticipation of the even darker cry of dereliction that will come in a few hours in Jesus' life. It is not just that Jesus sees his suffering as the fulfillment of laments in general. Rather, in, at this moment, he gravitates to the darkest, the most extreme psalms, the psalms in which the Lord forgets and forsakes the suffering servant because he knows that it is his destiny to fulfill them. And of course, through it all, as in Psalms 42 and 43, Jesus continues to trust in God to deliver him. That's also what undergirds the Psalms of Lament, the trust that God will deliver me. Of course, a few hours later, Jesus quotes from the lament of, the, after he quotes from the, laments of, the lament of Psalm 42 and 43, he speaks the opening words of that most extreme individual psalm, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is it just that, that in that moment of being abandoned by God, Jesus finds in Psalm 22, just the right words to speak in his to express his anguish to put this differently are these just the right words of lament in a moment of darkness yes but i believe that something more profound is happening here it appears quite likely likely based on the evidence of the way on the way that psalm 22 was interpreted qumran that first century jews read this psalm as more than a lament Rather, they read this psalm as a prophecy of the sufferings that the righteous would experience just before they received eschatological vindication. In other words, Psalm 22 was already being read in that setting in connection with the prophecies about the Isianic suffering servant. This suggests to me that when Jesus quotes from Psalm 22, he does so not merely because it gives him biblical words of lament, but more deeply because he reads this psalm as a prophecy of the suffering servant, and he knows that he is the individual messianic embodiment of the servant. In other words, Jesus recites Psalm 22.1 not only as a cry of real anguish, but also as the fulfillment of prophecy. I guess that's fairly obvious. And of course, the gospel writers, understanding that Jesus' death is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Psalm 22, start looking around the events surrounding, uh, Jesus, surrounding the crucifixion, and they find in those events the mocking, the piercing of Jesus' hands, the casting of lots, and the dividing of gar garments. They find other fulfillments of this piece of prophetic psalmody. But here is where I differ with those who identify Psalm 22 as a Messianic psalm. Jesus' use of Psalm 42 and 43 in Gethsemane indicates that he reads all the laments, not just the one or two Messianic psalms, but he reads them all as prophetic psalmody. And as he drove towards that most intense and focused moment of his passion, he found in the extreme laments, the laments that spoke of God's silence, his absence, his forgetting, his forsaking, he finds them to be prophecies of what he would experience in the climactic moment of his calling as the suffering servant. Not even Isaiah 53 spoke of God forsaking his servant. Only the extreme laments gave Jesus the full picture of the bitterness of the cup that he was about to drink. Read as eschatological psalmody, these disturbing questions of the, the, the laments, these questions that have gone unanswered for centuries, Questions like, why do you stand afar off? Why have you forsaken me? Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction? Finally, 
have an answer. Why? Because these laments speak prophetically of the suffering servant and it is his dark calling to be forgotten and forsaken, treat, treated as a covenant breaker so that the Lord might treat Israel and the Gentiles as covenant keepers. At last, the questions are answered. Now, if I'm right, and Psalms 22, we are now in concluding sections. If I'm right, and Psalms 22 and 42, 43 are part of a wider phenomenon of eschatological psalmody that points beyond the original events to the suffering of the Messiah, then that should encourage us to revisit the many psalms of lament and read them in a prophetic, messianic direction. Of course, this requires that we, regard, that we engage in creative and imaginative Christological readings of the lament psalms. Time constraints prevents me from doing this in any programmatic way, but let me quickly, just one or two verses from Psalm 13, indicate how I would start to read psalms, the laments, in a, in a Christological direction. The complaint, oh, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Becomes an alternative lament to the cry of dereliction. I put those words into Jesus' mouth, as it were. If the question, why have you forsaken me, now receives the gospel answer, I've forsaken you to bring the sheep who have gone astray back into the fold. There's an answer now to that question. Then the question, O Lord, how long, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever, now receives a resurrection answer. No, not forever just for three days. The prayer that the Lord would light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken, is fulfilled, of course, when Jesus rescues, uh, when God rescues Jesus from the sleep of death and silences the rejoicing of the great enemy of Satan. I'm just giving you hints as the kind of creative, imaginative readings that we need to engage in with these other Psalms of Lament, which are not quoted elsewhere in the New Testament. Now, finally, in conclusion, at last, um, one last question. In reading the laments of, the of these laments as eschatological psalmody of the suffering servant, have I stolen this group of psalms from ordinary Christians? Uh, by no means. May again I tell. Um, Christian appropriation of the Psalter must always be an in Christ exercise, if only to protect us from reading the psalms in a way the same way as our Jewish friends do. Paul would remind us that because we have been united to Christ, we share in his sufferings. And therefore, the Psalms that speak of his sufferings also speak of ours and provide for us the words to speak as we are folded into the life and death of the suffering servant. In Romans 8, Paul surprisingly, surprisingly names the life, of the, of the life in the spirit as a life of groaning. As we wait the redemption of our bodies, more specifically, it is a life of our life, our life in Christ, is a life of tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. It is a life, it is a calling that is summed up in the words of the darkest uh, psalm of communal lament, Psalm 44. Words which Paul surprisingly quotes. It is for your sake that we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What a strange psalm to use to describe our condition of being in Christ. Yes, but not really. The laments read as prophetic psalmody predict and describe the life of the suffering servants of the suffering servant. And yet Paul can go on to say that in all this suffering and groaning, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We live in the psalms of lament. 
united to Christ, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And there is a sense in which all our prayers for deliverance, um, but there's a sense in which all our prayers for deliverance that echo through the laments, they have for us. There's something different about the way we use them. Those prayers of to call God to come to our aid, they have already been answered in Christ. God has come to the aid of his, rescue, of his afflicted people. We are already more than conquerors, as Paul would say. The victory that the psalmist so often long for has come to us in Christ. So standing on this side of the resurrection transforms the way that we read the Psalms of Lament. We lament still. But we affirm our trust in the covenant faithfulness of God more strongly than any psalmist ever could because we have already seen God's answer to his people's cry for deliverance in the death and resurrection of our Saviour Jesus.